Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 11, Biology, Technology and Evolution with Peter Lemons. The prisoners in Plato's cave have their eyes fixed on the cave wall. Their attention is literally captured by the shadows. They cannot turn their head and since they've been there all their lives and they cannot look at each other, that means that they have never seen a human being. If you ask them, what is a human being? They would tell you to look at the cave wall to find your answer. But as we know, and they don't, that is not a human being, but a shadow of an artifact carried in front of a fire. In Plato's day, we might think of a marble statue chiseled by an artisan. So what they call human is actually a shadow of a statue, a piece of technology. And those artifacts, in conjunction with the fire, make up the limits of possibility of what the prisoners can experience. In other words, they cannot see a shadow unless it has first been produced as an artifact. So, let me ask you, what is a human being? Don't worry if you cannot answer that immediately. I googled it for you. And this is the answer that Encyclopedia Britannica gives. I quote, Human being, a culture-bearing primate classified in the genus Homo, especially the species Homo sapiens. Human beings are anatomically similar and related to the great apes, but are distinguished by a more highly developed brain and a resultant capacity for articulate speech and abstract reasoning. In addition, human beings display a marked erectness of body carriage that frees the hands for use as manipulative members, etc., etc. So this is a common answer to that question. A human being is an organism that descended from the great apes and that in the course of biological evolution developed intelligence, speech and technology. This is the answer to the question given in Plato's cave. Okay, yes, this answer is accurate, but does it really go to the essence of what the human being is? We can say a human being is an organism, but okay, what is an organism? And if human being is really a product of evolution, doesn't the answer of the question change as we continue to evolve? And what happens to this answer when we reckon with the fact that the question what is a human being is always asked by a human being? Isn't that kind of subjective? Because the answer to that question is the answer that a human being would give. That's not really objective, is it? What happens if we look closely at our relationship to technology and our relationship to speech and the relationship between the development of the brain and technological development? For instance, do we really invent and control technology? Couldn't we equally say that technology invents and controls us? Okay, obviously this is a very big question. What is a human being? And there are many different ways of going about answering that. Okay, obviously this is a very big question. What is a human being? But I think I have found just the right human being to guide us through Plato's cave with regard to this question. Peter Lemmens teaches philosophy and ethics at the Radboud University in Nijmegen. 
He has published on themes in philosophy of technology, innovation, digital technologies, cognitive enhancements, and on the work of Martin Heidegger, Peter Sloterdijk, and Bernard Stiegler. Peter studied biology and philosophy. His PhD research was initially about the understanding of organism in evolution theory, but he changed his question midway as his own understanding continued to evolve. And he started focusing on questions about the human condition as a technical condition and how philosophy of technology can help us understanding this. Peter published extensively about all of these issues and he is an expert in the philosophy of Bernard Stiegler. I will link some of his publications in the description and I recommend them because both Martin Heidegger and Bernard Stiegler are notoriously difficult philosophers. But Peter manages to describe them in a way that makes sense to people without a background in philosophy. In addition to these articles, I also recommend an accessible introduction to philosophy of technology that Peter co-authored and which will come out in 2022. It's called The Technical Condition, The Entanglement of Technology, Culture and Society. And I will provide a link to that as well. So in this conversation with Peter, we will take a journey through Plato's cave by following Peter's intellectual journey, his thinking path. We will start in biology that sees human beings as organisms. Then we discuss Heidegger's book, Being and Time, where he asks the question of being. Because if we say human being, what is this being of human being? And then we will focus on the work of Bernard Stiegler, a philosopher of technology who thought about the relation between technology, biology and evolution. Finally, we focus how technological evolution got us into the climate crisis and on Bernard Stiegler's idea of what needs to happen for us to turn the Anthropocene into what he calls the neck Anthropocene, which would be the next stage in human evolution, if we can get there. Peter, thank you for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, as they always say on, on podcasts. I'm, I'm very honored with it. So. <laughs> Some, sometime in this podcast, I'm going to say, let's unpack this, uh, because I haven't yeah. done that yet in my podcast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we know each other from a while back when we uh, both yeah. worked at Meta, which now is quite funny with the new Facebook name change, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't uh, talk at all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Meta. But Meta, is, is Meta still existing? Not I think the name changed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. In, in the second episode, when I spoke with Johannes Niederhauser, we also discussed this idea about philosophy. I mean, there's an idea about philosophy and about other things, too, that, that at one point you reach the surface. Uh, you know, you come from the cave, you reach the surface. Mm-hmm. And then you have to try to communicate that insight to the people in the cave who are, of course, too stupid to understand you. So you have to explain them many times. Yeah, but yeah. basically, there's one idea that you have. And you try to explain that. But then when we spoke together, we, we discussed Heidegger's interpretation of the cave, where it is more, you go up and down many times, or maybe you go up halfway and you think you're at the surface, but actually later you discover, whoa, there's more to go. And it's more kind of a thinking path than a one-time insight. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
that was my uh, question to you. If we can kind of try to trace your thinking path to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, concretely, uh, you know, I started off as, as a scientist uh, at the uh, Radboud University in uh, the mid-late 80s uh, as a biologist. Hmm. I studied biology uh, also, um, and probably that was still <laughs> in the cave, the cave of science. <laughs> and at some point, I, uh, I was already reading uh, a lot of philosophy of science maybe like like Popper and Kuhn etc which was very critical with respect to, to science and then when I started to uh, follow lectures uh, at Radboud University in philosophy I really discovered something of which I thought well this is what I want to do right this these are yeah. the really interesting questions questions that were not addressed uh, at, at, uh, at the biology uh, institute right um, what was your reason for studying biology well what was my reason for I, I i've always loved animals and nature and and i was very interested in evolution in particular hmm. so uh, evolution and i'm still interested in evolution uh, although i'm now more interested in techno evolution and in bioevolution But um, I, I remember uh, my the first book ever that I uh, got from uh, the library in the village where I lived. When I went there with my mother, I was six or seven, I guess, was a book on dinosaurs, right? You know, as many uh, young boys, uh, are, I was completely fascinated with dinosaurs. And then, you know, you discover that uh, life, you know, is a... Is a process, and that you know, during uh, the course of, of geological history, floras and faunas change dramatically, right? And then yeah. you get to know uh, the Darwinist view of, of evolution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've I've always been interested in uh, in evolution. Um, yeah. And, um, as a biologist, I, I also studied uh, evolutionary biology. Uh, as well as microbiology at Radboud University. And I also finished that study. But uh, for the more, you know, fundamental questions about these issues, you know, what is selection? What is evolution? What are species? What is temporality in biology? Yeah. What is an organism? Uh, these are questions that are not uh, asked and not addressed at biology departments, which is very practical, right? It's very... Uh, technical affair uh, you're busy you, uh, I, as a microbiologist doing uh, research at the microbiology department I was looking at uh, very small the function of very small subunits in uh, anaerobic protozoa so you know there's a very small focus on what, what is what is this molecule doing and I was interested in the bigger questions and I, I only uh, you know I, I only saw these questions uh, asked in uh, in the philosophy faculty in Nijmegen. Yeah. And so I, I started also there with philosophy of science, first of all, because I, I was a scientist, a natural scientist. But uh, at some point, I also, um, you know, took other courses like uh, ethics and phenomenology and metaphysics. And at some point, I discovered Heidegger, right? There was someone who taught a course on Heidegger's being in time. And this was for me, you know, a totally a new experience to, 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 to be able to think like that, 
right? To, to, to discover that there is a way of thinking called phenomenology. Yeah. Allows you to enter, you know, to see and observe phenomena in a very different way than, than science, than, than, than biology. Different ways that I was used to be. What was that difference at the time? If you look at your biology, with your biology colleagues, you look at, for instance, an organism that you study or the, the microbes that you study, how would... Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I studied microbes, but you, you study it very objectively, right? And, yeah. Uh, at a distance. You look through the microscope and uh, yeah. that's where you see your object of study. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's at, a, at a big distance. Uh, you objectify it. You try to find regularities, right? You do a lot of measurement. It's actually the only thing you do as a scientist. You do a lot of measurements. And the discourse on Heidegger was very much about myself, hmm. right? Uh, we did uh, being in time. And that's, of course, a phenomenological analysis of human existence. And uh, that was totally new for me. Uh, I was then uh, at a period in my life when I was also dealing on, on a personal level with existential questions, you know, my mortality, my finitude, et cetera, et cetera. And this uh, was very much echoed uh, in, in, in Zion's side and in my reading of Zion's side. Yeah. And when I started reading it, I, I didn't know any, well, I, didn't, I knew a little bit of German, but I actually learned really reading German while going through Zeinund Zeit and later on other uh, books of Heidegger and later on, of course, other, other uh, philosophy books in German. And I was totally flabbergasted, really. I was, I was totally fascinated with this way of thinking. Mm. I became increasingly interested in it. And, um, and of course, then you also start to ask, you know, we, we can go into Heidegger's understanding of human existence. Uh, of, of, of human being and uh, how that differs from uh, the biological understanding. Yeah, well, well maybe but, just to start, what, what is the uh, main question of being in time? Yeah, the question of being. Uh, hmm. that's, that, that's Heidegger's uh, famous question that he asks in, uh, in that book. And uh, the answer, you know, if you look at the title, Being and Time, uh, the answer that he ultimately gives uh, in this book is that being is uh, a, a kind of time, a kind of temporality, zeitlichkeit, as he as he calls it. Kind of a spoiler alert. Uh, That's title. a spoiler <laughs> alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but he 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 also talks about it in the in in the in the early uh, sections of the book. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's the question of being and uh, what yeah. is being as as a question that has never been asked. In the history of uh, philosophy or as metaphysics that's what heidegger claims yeah uh, while it should be the primary question and uh, but before uh, being able to answer that question what, what being is uh, he shows that you first need to understand uh, the way of being of the being that asks that question right which is for him uh, uniquely the human being which he uh, calls Dasein, that book. So he develops uh, a phenomenological analysis of how human beings are, right? Being aware of the fact that if you do that, then you already know in a way implicitly, right? What being is, 
yeah. using this, what he calls a for understanding of being, a kind of implicit understanding of being to analyze, explicate uh, human being. And that's the, the famous hermeneutic circle uh, that he talks about. Well, we, we use the word, I don't know if it's the most common word in uh, it's the most common is, word, yeah. we, we use it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's I am it, here, you are there, uh, I am a man. Uh. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's in every sentence, uh, either explicitly or explicitly uh, that we use. Yeah. Uh, so there is an understanding to it, right? And there are also different ways of, of understanding being. Some things can be true, for instance, or, uh, or real, right? So uh, we understand it in a way, but not explicitly. We do not really understand what it is. And that, that was Heidegger's project in Being in Time. So, so in Being in Time, he asks a question, uh, what is being? And then his first step is to, well, to say, well, who is, this, who is asking this question? Which is a, a being who is, uh, namely, yeah. the being who I am. Yes. So where is my access to being? Uh, uh, maybe if you compare it to you as a bio biologist looking through your microscope, you're trying to understand the microbes, whatever you're looking at. Yes. But in this case, you are also the, of course, we also have microbes in our body. <laughs> we do a lot. Yeah, that's right? what we discovered in, in, the, yeah. in the last couple of decades. And there the ideas maybe if we, for instance, in biology, if we want to know what a human being is, we need to study, well, basically human beings, bodies or parts of bodies or parts of processes that are also present in other animals. Yeah, we, we in, in, in microbiology and in biology uh, as such, we, we uh, try to understand ourselves as organisms, yeah. as very complex uh, organisms, complex uh, agglomerations of, of processes, you know, microbial uh, molecular processes, genetic processes, metabolic processes, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, recently, uh, with the discovery of the so-called microbiome, we, have, uh, we know that uh, we, we consist for a large part of microbes, and there's a lot of microbial DNA into our bodies, which is actually more than, than, than what we call human DNA. But these are all uh, objectifying sciences, Right. What is a microbe? A microbe is a small uh, critter, like a bacteria. Yeah. I'm not sure if you call viruses also microbes, but certainly bacteria. Yeah. Which are uh, very small uh, entities. Uh, well, like one cell. Uh, you've got bacteria and protozoa. And uh, yeah, that's a microbe, a, a microscopically small uh being either animal or plant-like that you can only see under the microscope. And then studying yeah. microbes and understanding better how they work uh, yes. would also lead to a better understanding of human beings because microbes are so essential to yes. uh, us as organisms. Yeah, yeah, that's what we discover now, that uh, there are a lot of microbes in our, um, in, in our body and also in our brains, for instance, uh, but also in our digestive tract mm -hmm. and uh, without their functioning, we, we could not function. So they do a lot of stuff for us. And we're increasingly interested in how these microbes, their functioning conditions, all kinds of biological processes.
and it, uh, it it promises to be a huge uh, transformation. It promises to become a huge transformation, uh, especially in health. Uh, our microbiome is very important for our health, uh, much more important than, we, than we've always thought. And it's also uh, what it also uh, means is a transformation in how we understand uh, microbes, right? Since Louis Pasteur who was the, one of the first discoverers of microbes. We've seen them as, uh, as dangerous uh, to us, right? Where we're afraid of microbes because they cause diseases, et cetera, et cetera. While in this new uh, microbiome paradigm, as you might call it, uh, you know, we more and more realize that there also, there's also lots of positive sides, right? We depend on, on, uh, on our symbiosis uh, with microbes, and we consist of microbes. So, uh, also what a human being is biologically, uh, the view of it is changing uh, under the influence of uh, the microbiome, right? So, uh, what is a human human being? Is that only the human, or does it also imply all its microorganisms? And how to understand that? So, the whole concept also of species, in a way, is being. Uh, uh, in a way under attack now, under the influence of the microbiome. But again, that's all very uh, object, an objective way of looking at human beings, a scientific way as a bunch of uh, very complex uh, processes. But it sounds yeah. very good. Uh, it sounds pretty good. It sounds like uh, if we know, uh, you know, not just the microbes, but also, uh, you know, we, we have psychology, yeah. uh, we have sociology, we have chemistry, we have physics, we have, uh, I mean, I could continue, but um, those are all the sciences, the, let's say the life sciences that, that look amongst other things about what are human beings. Yes. Why, why do we need uh, uh, Heidegger? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Now we need Heidegger, I think, because he focuses on a different, a very, a really for him at least, a very fundamentally different aspect and that is again the aspect of being right all disciplines whether uh, by whether this biology or psychology or sociology or, or or whatever in a way uh looks at the human as as a being as a as a biological being or a psychological being it, uh, and it looks at its traits what is it made of and what kind of functions are there? What kind of processes can we see, right? Whereas Heidegger um, asks, what is the being of human beings? And he emphasized the fact that our being is not itself a being, right? It's a kind of movement. Uh, it's not even a process. It's, it's the way how we are in the world, right? It's something that we at this moment are, you could say doing, but we're also, it's not exactly doing, it's what happens to us now, right? In, in, in this, this interview and the way how we talk, it's, it's, it's a kind of, um, it's, it's not a trait, right? Like in yeah. intelligence of, of hair color, of eye color, it's how we are in the world. Yeah. Right. And um, and what what he did in in in, in Zeit is to find out 
not what are our, what are our, what are our traits or our attributes, right? But what's our way of being? Yeah. And 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 he uncovered a lot of characteristics of our human being, and he called them existentials, right? And existentials are features, you could say, of human being, uh, which he called existence, which are different from our categorical traits, right? Yeah, so categorical traits, I, I would think about uh, we're a primate, um, we're homo sapiens, uh, we, we have a, a, a maybe a larger brain than yeah. other animals, we have language. Um, yes, yeah, exactly, all these yeah. kinds of things. That, that, that considers us as, as yeah. certain substances. But if we would have a list of all those traits, which is of course impossible, but mm -hmm. our DNA and our, you know, you can continue probably forever listing all those traits. Yes. Theoretically, we still wouldn't have the human being. No, we, we still wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't know about what Heidegger considers to be the essential thing. And that's our existence. No. Our way of being, our what he called our Dasein, uh, our our and what is typical for human Dasein is that it understands being, that it is open to being, and that because of this openness, it can do all this research, right? Uh, it can do biological research, it can uh, investigate, you know, its brain, uh, but also, uh, you know, the functioning of trees or the way that black holes in the universe uh, behave, right? That's only because we have this understanding of being. And this understanding of being is a, a feature of our way of being, right? It is because we, we are in a typical, in, in a certain way, which Heidegger called existence, standing out, exist in the, what he sometimes called the, the clearing of being, yeah? No. Because of that, because of this, uh, it's not a trait. It's, a, it's, it's our being. It's an ontological characteristic, uh, which he thought of as unique to human beings. Only human beings as Dasein have this uh, unique capacity, you could say, although that's not the right word, but there is this unique way of being that allows them to understand uh, being. Yeah. And only on the basis of this, you can also understand beings like uh, living beings or social beings or let's say inorganic beings. Yeah, so returning to the first question, we first need to understand the one who is asking the question about yes. being. Yes. If we have more insight in that, we can also start to maybe better ask other questions such as in biology, what is an organism or... Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, other question. Just just um, because you mentioned a few times the word Dasein, which is a, yes. a, a German, a strange German uh, word, even for Germans, I guess. A Dasein yeah, in German well, just means existence or? For Germans, it means just, I think, yeah, existence, like like, yeah. like being there. It, it, it also means that for Heidegger, but of course Heidegger uh, gave this word uh, a different meaning for him. Uh, he turned it into a, a key term Dasein is, yeah, human being there, being yeah. there in the world, uh, uh, you know, um, having a certain place or locality 
and also being inserted, let's say, in, in a historical epoch. Yeah. Right? And we are this there, you know, that's we, 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 we exist as being this there. Yeah. Uh, that's what he wanted to, uh, to, to find out is how is this being there possible? It's a strange, I don't, I don't know why I think about this, but I, I have a small daughter. Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, when she's, uh, when the uh, child is just born, they stay most of the time with their parents. And after some time, they start to go with other, um, you know, people like yeah. uh, grandparents and everything, Yeah, which is uh, difficult as a parent. Uh, but then you always know where she is in the beginning. Mm. But then at, at, there's another point where, because uh, maybe uh, I'm at work and my I don't know if she's with my wife or my wife took her to my grandparents or something mm. like Yeah, I had this, maybe it's, I don't know if it's related, but I had this realization, which is so obvious, but I, for me, it was like, wow, she's always somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she takes, yeah. Yeah. She takes her there with her. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, because she's still young, uh, and Heidegger never thought about that, uh, about, let's say, the ontogenesis of the dare, right? But I think there is, a, of course, a development of the dare. If you just are born, right, you have no language, etc., And you have a certain da, da, a certain world, which is probably very primitive, consisting of a mother's breast, right? And uh, what Freud called the Milky Way, right? And, and you know, and and you can feel warmth, I guess, and and cold, and you can cry, and so your world, your da, is still very primitive, and you know, yeah, everything is there immediately. Yeah, yeah, no, no, not not in a way, but in a in a childish way, there is a you could say there is a an infantile da, which is. A, uh, which is not yet linguistic, yeah. right? Uh, but when a child develops this da, let's say this, this world of the child becomes, of course, increasingly complex when it starts to know language and starts to read, you know, the world gets bigger, right? And, and more open. Yeah. And uh, when you finally go to school, uh, of course, your da lightens up. Uh, so to speak. These are all things that Heidegger never thought about. He never uh, addressed the question of, let's say, an infantile Dasein. Mm -hmm. Heidegger in Dasein is always a mature Dasein, right? It's, it's a mature human being that has its own freedom, that is able to, um, yeah, to behave itself in the world in a certain way it's it's uh, implicitly right he, he never addresses that but that's what it implicitly is yeah because he was never so much interested in these uh, biological questions yeah but that's you know that, that's but you were so you were, were yes you were <laughs> studying biology and exactly. then you studied uh philosophy as well yes and started reading heidegger yes 
and Heidegger, who himself was not, uh, I mean, he did give some lectures for medics, uh, the, the Tolkien seminars and everything, but... Yeah, but it was late in his career. That was later, yeah, but yeah. I was, being in time at least, it's not about biology. So how did you connect those, or did you connect them at all? Yeah, of course did I, I, I did connect them. Yeah. And, and um, But it took a long time before I really got a hold on how to, to, to question it, right? There is... Uh, indeed, as you say, Heidegger uh, talked about biology and the organism in, uh, I think it's the late 60s, when he gave this Zolikona seminar, the Zolikon seminars, with Meda Boss, who was a, a Swiss uh, psychologist and I think also psychoanalyst. Yeah. And he discussed a lot on, with these uh, psychologists and psychiatrists on the organismic understanding of the human and the psycholytic understanding. He was very critical, by the way, Heidegger, mm -hmm. analysis, especially Freud. But he also in the early, late 20s, early 30s, he had a lecture course on, let's say, biology. Well, not on biology, but on the notion of the organism or on life. Yeah. in which he made uh, distinctions between uh, human being as existence and, and, and the being of living beings. Yeah. Right? That's, so he, he, he was aware of this difference, of course, but as I said first, he never thought about the ontogenesis of Dasein. You know, you are born as, as, as a baby and then you grow up and how do you enter into this there or how do you become this fully mature human Dasein. But what he neither uh, addressed, or only tangentially sometimes, and being very um, dismissive about it, was the evolutionary uh, perspective. Right? Dasein for Heidegger uh, is something that appears, you could say, as by a miracle uh, at the Greek commencement, of philosophy in a way, right? With, with the pre-Socratics and then later with Plato and Aristotle. But there's no uh, addressing of the fact that we are of course products of a long evolutionary trajectory, right? Yeah, just as a, a metaphor, it makes me think of, you probably noticed from uh, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. I know the, I know the movie, yeah. Yeah, so, so there's two, uh, you know, a couple on holiday in Hawaii sitting in a restaurant and uh, they don't know what to talk about. So the waiter says, well, uh, we have a conversation menu and the topic <laughs> today is philosophy. So here, uh, and they, they ask, what is philosophy? Mm. And uh, then he says something like, uh, well, have you ever wondered why you are here? And then they say, well, uh, something like, well, we went to uh, this other place last year. So this time we decided to come here. No, I mean, like, how did you get here? Well, we took the train and the airplane and the bus. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, he means like, no, why? But why? Why the why? Yeah. Uh, but then I think many philosophers then dismiss the other question because they did end up in that restaurant mm. through a certain process yeah. as well. Yeah. And if you only concentrate on... Yeah, but why? What is the meaning of life? What is the reason for existence? And you completely mm. ignore that we, uh, you know, the story of the dinosaurs. Mm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, While well, the dinosaurs died out, so the uh, um, other 
animals had more space to grow so to speak and yeah. you know this whole story you need to think that as well right yeah yeah that's it, that's very interesting that that you say that you, you can you can zoom in on a certain let's say daily situation like like people indeed being on a holiday and sitting somewhere uh, in a restaurant or on a terrace and then where do you come from and then you can go like uh, what did we what did we do yesterday and then you know we planned this holiday and you go a couple of weeks and you you can go more and more into the past right and you know ultimately you can uh, you can go, go back to your birth and to your parents when they created you and then to their you know then when they fell in love and then you know your grand etc cetera, etc cetera. you can yeah. go back ultimately all the way to the big bang right that that would be the the scientific explanation uh, ultimately if, if we were infinite knowers like divine knowers we would be able to right to find out all these uh, causalities uh, that ended up being you and her sitting <laughs> drinking coffee yeah right um and that's of course that's an important question and then a, a large part of that explanation is of course the evolutionary explanation right with the origin of life and then the origin of the human um but with Heide what, what heidegger is interested in is that moment from which you cannot understand this process anymore let's say as an objective physical or physical chemical or biological process but as the unfolding of freedom, as, as, as what Heidegger would call historicity, we are, uh, according to him, very unique beings that we differ from animals uh, in the fact that we do not have these instinctive, uh, let's say automatic uh, behavior repertoires, but we are free in a certain way. And how to understand this freedom is of course a big question. Um, but he's interested in this, this unique way of being, right, that we, that we somehow have and how that is related to our freedom. Um, but he, but, and, and he is interested in, in describing that, in, in phenomenologically uh, explicating that, and that's what he does in, in, in being in time. But what he doesn't do is, in a way, thinking about the genesis of this, this existence of, of these possibilities, of these capabilities, right? He, he, he's a phenomenologist, where he remains within phenomenology. So he remains focused on the phenomena as they give themselves, right? Uh, and also Heidegger is of course uh, inserted in a certain historical epoch, right? He lived in Germany he was born in 18, uh, 1889, right? And uh, he went to school there and uh, he, he, he experienced the First World War, et cetera, et cetera. So but th that's his, um, his, his, his historical situation, so to speak. Yeah, including yeah. a very nasty part. But, uh, there's a very nasty that, part. Uh, yeah, we can, well. we can talk about that. Which we, I mean, I don't feel we should go in. Uh, we do no, no. go into it, but we should at least mention it that he did have uh some nazi affiliations and um 
Well, he uh, was he was a member of the uh, the National Socialist Party uh, until the very end of the war, and he was uh, a rector of the University of Freiburg for I think ten months from uh, May nineteen thirty three when the Reich, uh, so to say, started until uh, somewhere in 1934 when he resigned and it also became clear to him that uh, it was not exactly what he thought yeah. was going to happen. And, uh, but he, he resigned as, as, a, as a rector, but he never uh, gave up his membership of the National Socialist Party. And yeah, of course, with, with, with lately, like a couple of years ago, the so-called Black Notebooks uh, came out, the so-called Schwarze Hefte, his personal uh, notes and uh, yeah. yeah, they they some people call it diaries, but they were certainly not diaries. You don't learn anything about how he uh, whether they had a good time <laughs> right when they, were, when they were in France. No, these were all philosophical uh, reflections, yeah. but much more free, right? And, and and in a private sphere, and sometimes very interesting, but also sometimes very nasty, and especially in the. In the, in the, let's say, 1942, 43, there are some passages which are, you know, yeah, can be considered to be Nazist in, in nature. But there's a whole yeah. discussion. I, I don't have a, uh, a very pronounced, uh, uh, let's say, conviction about that. But, uh, no, me neither. But I think we should at least mention it if we, we should mention it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it sticks to Heidegger, and it, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but let's get back to you. So you graduated from university with a deep understanding of biology as well as philosophy, and then you started your PhD. And um, was that a way of bringing those two worlds together? Well, not 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 in the first not in the first. Uh, two years. Uh, actually, the, the topic of my uh, PhD project was, first of all, uh, to have a better understanding of the organism, not only the human organism, but the organism uh, as such. And it had to be a critique of more Darwinist selectionist understandings of, of the organism and showing that the organism has a more active role uh, in its own evolution or a more subjective role in, in a way no so it's about the theory of evolution but then i mean if you look at public it's still about evolution yeah yeah if you yeah. i just want to say if you look at public debates about evolution it's usually between evolution and something else and one part that is often neglected is that evolution is not it's not like one like it's not one mathematical theory no, no, no. It's no. more a whole field where there are many different people who disagree with each other about fundamental issues, right? And I think this yeah. is this is one of those issues um, of disagreement. Yeah, yeah you, you, you're totally correct. There, there, most people, when they think about evolution, they think immediately about Darwinist evolution because that's still the dominant paradigm. Um, and it, it's still not, uh, it, of course... It's still not completely, um, uh, let's say, contradicted. No, certainly not. But there are many other uh, competing theories of evolution as well, like autopoietic theories, uh, theories of self-organization, but, yeah. but many others. And, and I was interested in, uh, in these newer 
let's say not so much anti-Darwinist theories, but theories that gave uh, to the organism a more active role. Because in Darwinism, if you think about it, the organism is purely a product, purely a result, you could say, of, um, yeah, of autonomous forces, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have this genetic uh, processes which are completely spontaneous, genetic variation, etc., etc., and the genes are building organisms, right? And on, on the other side, you have the, uh, the autonomous force of the environment, which selects uh, every generation, generation anew, let's say, the products of, of, uh, of these genes and these, this genetic variation. So the organism is a purely passive product, right? This is something that the, the, um, the uh, American biologist uh, Lou Montin uh, pointed at. Uh, the, the organism, which is you know, the most active, the most complex, the most uh, autonomous being that we know is considered from a scientific, from a Darwinistic perspective, as a totally passive creature, right? As yeah. something that is the, the product of autonomous blind physical forces. Prima facie is pretty weird, right? <laughs> and you can also show by, by, by looking at other theories that it's, it's, it's probably also inadequate. Yeah. The organism has a much more active role in its own evolution, right? And that's something that uh, someone like Lamarck already theorized yeah. uh, we think that Lamarckian evolution uh, is um, uh, is invalid but it's more and more the case that also with with epigenetics for instance that it is um, yeah sort of rehabilitated yeah well and in a parallel universe you would have finished that PhD and we exactly would have, uh, you know yes. the entire conversation would be about that which I mean sounds fascinating it's fascinating yeah but you changed I mean, your mind yes I changed my mind because I uh, I was more and more interested in actually in human evolution uh, so I've always been and um, yeah at, at some point I, I started to 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 focus my research more and more on that ultimately and um, I didn't find a lot of uh, interesting material with the biologists that I read right um, a couple of them but they were mostly you know from the 20s and the 30s I, I, I looked a lot at, at, at philosophical anthropologists uh, such as Mark Shela and uh, Arnold Galen and um, many others, so to speak. And quite accidentally, and that's quite interesting if you think about it, I, I discovered uh, the work of Bernard Stiegler, uh, who is a, a famous philosopher of technology that unfortunately died last year. And he is someone that really in a way combines i would say more let's say heideggerian questions ontological questions with more evolutionary questions and he has a theory on how uh, human design as understood by heidegger right can be thought of as resulting from 
an evolutionary process. And that was a big discovery for me. So that's that's the point when I started to uh, completely change my research and focus on focus on that these questions. But there are many, but there are, but there are other other things as well. Like for instance, Peter Sloterdijk, uh, who thought a lot about uh, human evolution, and but also from a let's say an existentialist, uh, phenomenological, onto-anthropological perspective. And what was the topic of your new? What was the new topic of your PhD thesis? It was mainly about, uh, well, one part was uh, the implications of the biotechnology revolution uh, for our understanding of the human condition, of, of, of human nature. You know, is this, does this, does this uh, uh, imply, you know, a completely different human being? I, I also uh, wrote a lot about, uh, you know, Debates in human enhancement, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, genetic manipulation, etc. But most of the the research was on uh, what you could call with Stiegler uh, the the human uh, condition as a technical condition. So uh, the understanding of also of human evolution as a kind of technological evolution much yeah. more so than a biological evolution so from a biologist perspective uh, at one point human beings evolved from uh, other kind of uh, a homo species yes and uh, we developed a larger brain and yeah. I'm, I'm probably grossly oversimplifying and so we no. became we became smarter and then um, we got this thing uh, called technology. So we started using tools. We started farming uh, with fire, uh, wheel, the wheel, and everything, all the way until uh, the, the blood blaster. <laughs> but you call yeah, it yeah. The, the leaf blower, <laughs> where you blow anyway. Um, that's the. I think that's a, a biologist understanding, and also maybe I mean a lot of natural scientists speak about. Well, we're just intelligent apes. And because yeah. we're intelligent, we got this thing called technology. Yeah, that, that's that's the that's I still think the usual picture that we we first developed intelligence uh, biologically in in some kind of way, and then started to develop technology. Um, but with Stiegler and and many others, the idea is more that it started off with technology, right? And it is technology and our interaction, our continuous interaction and co-evolution with technology that gave us uh, our intelligence, or rather that human intelligence co-evolves uh, with human technology, right? Um, and when did that start? Well, that started with the... Uh, let's say the invention or the creation of the first tools, the first stone tools. Yeah? With Stiegler and, and also with Heidegger, the question is, of course, uh, that, uh, this, this question of human exceptionality, what, what makes humans uh, so different uh, from animals. And, and today we, we, uh, we tend to think 
well, there's no, not a, an essential difference, right? There's not an ontological difference. More yeah. and more, right? we are just another species, maybe a bit more intelligence, and maybe we use technology, et cetera, et cetera. But not, nothing ontologically, nothing essentially different. Uh, and I think in biology as well, the movement is towards uh, we're closer and closer to other <laughs> species, right? Or even I shouldn't use the word species, but. Yeah, well, for, for a biologist, uh, the human human being, Homo sapiens, is, of course, simply a species. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it does not differ in an essential way uh, from other animals or from other species. Um, and other animals use, well, there are uh, ants that build elaborate labyrinths. We can think about beehives. We can think about chimpanzees using sticks and everything. So... Isn't that also a kind of technology use? Um, it depends. It, it, it is a use of tools. Technology is something different, I think. But I think so far, uh, we know that animals use tools in, in, in very in, in intelligent ways, but they still do not evolve tools. They do mm -hmm. not uh, design tools. So there is in their evolutionary trajectory uh, not also an evolution of technology, uh, and this is this is what is unique for uh, for human beings, right? Yeah. And but but I wanted wanted to, to to go back a little bit to Heidegger for for Stiegler the the, the key to uh, understanding what is unique to the human. In, in, in terms in the Heideggerian terms of existence and, and freedom and being thrown into the world and having a historical mode of being, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The key to that all and the key to in a way to everything that is exceptional uh, for humans is techniques, is technology. Um, and, and what is important for him then is that he understands uh, technology, first of all, in terms of a new, uh, let's say an additional evolutionary process, right? Whereas all other animals have, you know, they evolve purely, let's say genetically, yeah, through, through uh, the evolution of genes and natural selection on these genes. Uh, humans also evolve through technology uh, by producing technical artifacts uh, that co-evolve with us. And in this co-evolution and in this constant interaction with technologies, we in fact became human. We became this intelligent, free, uh, ethical, Etc. Etc. All these characteristics that are unique to the human can be explained ultimately, according to Stiegler, by the fact that we um, possess this unique technological memory, so to speak, these technological tools that function as a kind of third external memory repository. And this starts with simple stone tools, which become more and more complex, of course, and paleoanthropologists can show that there is a parallelism 
between uh, the evolution of our brain. Now you talked about uh, the process of, of encephalization, that the becoming bigger of our brain, uh, mainly the prefrontal cortex, that there is a, a parallelism with this evolution hmm. and the evolution of technology, which becomes increasingly sophisticated and uh, there's increasingly more variation. So there is this, this co-development, co-evolution of, uh, yeah, of, of human intelligence. Yeah, I can, I can imagine if you uh, don't have much technology, so to speak, but you have a, a stone uh, a tool. Yeah. Um, and you discover you need to, you, you hunt and you cut. And at one point you discover perhaps that there uh, a certain shape is is good for hunting because you can throw it and, and it yeah. pierces the skin and but another shape is actually better for cutting yeah and then uh your children uh, maybe uh, you you die or something and your children find these two different shaped stones exactly they need to like their crack how do you say that crack their brain about what is the difference and everything so maybe they uh, yeah well uh, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, th I think you described it perfectly, uh, right? That, that, that what Stiegler um, emphasizes, and he's not, uh, it's not something that he himself uh, found out for the first time because he was very influenced by uh, a French paleoanthropologist, uh, André Leroy Gourin, who wrote uh, a very huge book about this uh, first in the 1940s and then in the 1960s. Um, uh, gesture and speech, uh, for instance. Um, yeah, that the, these tools, these first tools, are more durable uh, than the organism that creates this tool. Right, the biological organism is, is finite; it's mortal; it dies. Uh, but this tool, this stone tool, remains there. Remains there, indeed, to be taken up by uh, the next generation. Right, and it can function as a kind of model or a kind of ID to improve upon, uh, to, to make a more uh, sharp uh, stone knife, uh, as you, you, you already uh, showed. Um, and, 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 and that's the idea, yeah? because, because uh, these stone tools are more durable uh, and can survive uh, those who made it, right? Which, that's, by the way, now is a big problem, <laughs> but we'll yeah. get to that later. Yeah, that's now. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah, we're in a very different stage now. But um, the thing is that this stone tool is a kind of functions as a memory, right? It, it yeah. functions. What what we actually do when we create a stone tool is we inscribe a, a little bit of technical experience in uh, an object, in a material object, no. right? And uh, another generation can learn from this object and then try to create a, a more, a better one, a more sophisticated one. That's the idea of technology functioning uh, as a memory, as a memory device. Yeah, so the, the, uh, we, we, uh, the previous episode with Dominic Batman, we discussed yes. it very mm. briefly. The, the ter I think it's called the tertiary tertiary retention. retention. Yeah. yeah, but so what is the what are the first two? 
Yeah, but touch retention is a, is a concept that uh, comes from a completely different uh, ah, okay. philosophical register, uh, because Stilo developed that in his uh, dialogue with Husserl. Yeah, and Husserl, Leroy Gourin is a is a paleoanthropologist. So that's about anthropology and the evolution of, of humans. And that's where he talks about, uh, let's say, an external memory. Yeah. But Husserl was a phenomenologist, uh, the teacher of Heidegger. Yeah. There we have the two different perspectives again. Yeah. yeah. And that's, by the way, uh, incidentally, that's typical of, of Stiegler, much more, I think, than other philosophers, that he um, combines a lot of uh, intellectual registers, like he, he, there's a lot of phenomenology in it. There's a lot of psychoanalysis. He's influenced by uh, Marxist political economy. There's some Weberian sociology in it, uh, Freudian and Lacanian, well, not Lacanian actually, but Freudian psychoanalysis and, and much more. So yeah. he's uh, he's uh, his his discourse is very rich. It it is fed uh, by very different uh, philosophical uh, traditions, and one of them, the most important one, still I think, is of course phenomenology, but also deconstruction. He was a he was a pupil of Derrida, and this notion torture retention is developed in a dialogue with Husserl, and Husserl was. Uh, Husserl distinguished primary retentions. And just as a note, Husserl was the teacher of? Of Heidegger. Heidegger. Yeah. Edmund Husserl, yeah. who was a German a Jewish, uh, he was the, the founder of, of phenomenology yeah. as, as, a, as, a, as a philosophical method. And Heidegger, uh, yeah, he was a pupil. And just because it's just too good not to mention, but Stiegler read Husserl in prison. <laughs> right? Yeah, he read Husserl in prison. Yeah, but he, <laughs> that's that's another uh, chapter. But uh, yeah, yeah. Stiegler read Husserl uh, in prison, but also Heidegger. Yeah, and many other philosophers. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just too good not to. We can you tell it just briefly something oh, yeah. about Stiegler? Yeah. What kind, yeah. How did Stiegler get to be a philosopher? Story. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I talked about the fact that I accidentally stumbled upon Stiegler in, yeah. the, in the library somehow in, in, I don't know, 2004 or five. And Stiegler makes a, a big point about the fact that he became a philosopher by accident, right? Before he started uh, studying philosophy, and that was indeed uh, in prison, right? Because he, uh, in, in his 20s, he committed um, a, a, a couple of armed bank robberies, no less. <laughs> well, armed, he had a fake weapon, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, but yeah, that's true. But he uh, he committed some bank robberies, right? And um, he got in jail for that for five years uh, from 1978 to 1983, I think. And in this uh, prison, which was uh, in Toulouse, I think mostly, there was also another prison where he started off, but in Toulouse, there was a, a philosophy library. And uh, he already knew some philosophy, but he started reading uh, a lot of philosophy books. And it is indeed in his cell, reading uh, philosophy, being isolated 
right? Uh, not being able to go outside, etc. That he uh, came also uh, to his, let's say, his main philosophical insight, uh, which is that our interiority, our, our our thinking, our mind, so to speak, is always already dependent on exteriority, right? On uh, external memories, such as books and uh, paintings, and uh, well, they were not. Yeah, being I, in the prison cell. Yeah, being in the prison cell. He he was thinking through this constant, but by reading and making notes, uh, you know, of the books that he uh, uh, that he studied, right? So he he the the mind, the human mind uh, needs, let's say, uh, a milieu to operate in. Right, and we know that this is first of all a linguistic milieu, the milieu of language that we're also now using, right? But um, there's also the milieu of technology uh, that is crucial, uh, conditional for thinking, and that's that's the main discovery that he did while while being in in his prison cell. Um, and that was a kind of uh, Husserlian discovery, uh, the discovery of the of the epoche, but then in a very concrete sense. Yeah, and uh, he has written about that in in one of his books, uh, which is uh, titled "How I Became a Philosopher." So, accidentally, um, by being in prison, uh, being isolated. Uh, being able to read books but not go outside, etc. Being alone with his books and with his memory, he discovered, yeah, yeah this idea of the let's say the technical condition of, of of the mind of thinking as such. Yeah. So then we 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 uh, there uh, technology is a kind of memory. Yes. And and there's this idea about the tertiary. Retention? Yeah, let's say let, let, yeah. very simply, uh, Husserl distinguishes primary retentions and secondary retentions, and these are simple memories. Uh, when he analyzed that in, uh, in the 20s, he was listening to a, a recording of a gramophone, uh, let's say, uh, a piece by Beethoven. <laughs> and if you listen to uh, you know, the, this melody and you hear it and you remember it, uh, and then you, you know, the, the music continues, uh, and you hear other things, but you have always a primary memory, and that's this little piece of music that you just heard, right? Ta 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 ta. It's something that you uh, remember for, let's say, a couple of seconds, right? That's primary memory. That's, and this is a, a phenomenological. Uh, concept, a phenomenological experience. Uh, you listen, you listen to this music, and you have this experience, and it lingers for yeah. some time in 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 your uh, in your stream of consciousness. And it's lingering for some time, which is perceptual, right? It, it it happens here and now. You perceive it, yeah. Senses. That's primary retention. So that's even primary retention is already yeah. different from how we sometimes look at time. If uh, yeah, you can say we always live now, but if that's true, then you only hear one note. Exactly. But yes. um, one of one of my music teachers, or I asked one of my music teachers sometime, can you make a 
uh, aren't you afraid that you make mistakes if you perform? And he said, well, I can't make mistakes because there's no, if you play, let's say a wrong note, it's wrong. Well, first of all, is it's, it's wrong in relation to the notes preceding it. So mm -hmm. if you yeah. suddenly start to play in a different key, that sounds strange. People think, huh? Yeah. But then the, the question of whether it's wrong or not depends on which notes do you play afterwards. Exactly. And yeah. there's no note that you can play after any note that you cannot, uh, you have to give a new context to it. So yeah. then you say, well, now we switch to another key. But you yeah. cannot explain that if you just focus on, well, I live now in this moment and I only hear this note. You need exactly. to make the little context around it. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and that's when he comes up, Husserl, with this concept of the secondary retention. And the secondary retention is not something that you perceive and that then lingers on for a, a, a little in, in the mind, but that's something that you, you've heard, like this first ta-ta-ta-ta, you, um, you know, it goes somewhere in your brain, probably, right? It's, it's a neurological process, but you remember it, right? And, but it's not present. But if you then listen uh, for the second time or a third time to the same uh, piece of music uh, on the gramophone, right? You have this secondary retention. And we all know that hearing a piece of music for the second time is different you hear different things, you hear more things. Right? And when yeah. it's good music, it becomes prettier, it, it becomes more interesting. And when it's bad music, it becomes less interesting, you, you could say as a rule. But uh, you listen to it differently because you have this secondary retention. You already heard ta-ta-ta-ta. But now it's not perceptual. It's something that you uh, recall from your mind, right? But it's, it's present in a way uh, while listening for the second time to this piece of music, right? So primary tension is what you immediately at this point in time experience, while secondary experiences is what you recall from memory. You see, and, and, and that's for Husserl uh, a very important uh, distinction and the distinction between uh, per perception and remembrance or what he also calls sometimes imagination because yeah. you imagine it again by uh, recalling it from memory yeah and what Stiegler showed in 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 his analysis uh, and he does that in the in the second volume of his uh, magnum opus techniques and time that uh Husserl was only able to make this distinction be between primary and secondary retention because he was able to listen to the same recording, right? Mm -hmm. The exact same recording. So, um, but he, he could perceive a difference, right? But he could only perceive a dis difference because the experience uh, of this exact uh, same recording was yeah uh, was different yeah and uh, so he could only make this distinction on the basis of having access to what Stiegler then calls a tertiary retention and the tertiary retention is a technical memory that is uh, recording for instance of Beethoven yeah? 
it's something that is inscribed uh, in matter, in this case, in, in a piece of vinyl, uh, a, a gramophone, or, or something else, I think. I'm, I'm yeah, it could curious. be a transcription in, uh, of the notes. A transcription, it, it, it could be anything, but it, it is a recording, an, an exact recording of, uh, of something. Yeah. And uh, this tertiary retention is very important uh, for Stiegler because it ultimately uh, also conditions our primary retentions and also our secondary retentions. Um, what, uh, what insight did that give you, that concept of tertiary retention? Uh, I don't know if this was during your PhD or when you discovered Stiegler. Oh. How did you feel it contributed to what you knew already about biology, about biotechnology, uh, about Heidegger? Yeah, well, this is more the phenomenological register, so it, it, it gave me more a better insight in uh, in Heidegger, right? It's 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 it, this is the um, you know this is about how the mind works, and um, tertiary tension is is something that Stiegler well he uses it sometimes when he talks about evolution. Um, well, let's say with respect to Heidegger. Why did it help me to understand Heidegger? Well, Heidegger talks about human beings as historical beings, right? Uh, as beings that have a historical legacy that, 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 are, that, that grow up and are uh, determined by uh, a certain culture, right? Yeah, just very simply, I was born in 1982. Yeah. And there was already... And thankfully, many things that, that were there, like culture, like the Dutch language, like television, yes. like airplanes. And yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And, 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 and then to go, go back to Dasein again, Dasein is a, is a, is a temporal creature that, that, that exists by temporalizing, uh, by constantly being in the world and temporalizing. And how does it do that? It, it does that by being present of course as we are now but also always by projecting ourselves into the future right we're always busy uh, with uh, future plans we have agendas etc cetera, etc cetera. and ultimately uh, there is at the end of course our our, our death but we're always anticipating the future so we live in the future yeah? we are constantly in uh, what Stiegler calls with Husserl protension we are potentializing beings. Uh, and we are also, also, also all, always already living in the past, right? We accumulate all kinds of experiences and out of these experiences, we, uh, yeah, we project ourselves into the future. Yeah. And, and our, be, our being present is always this projecting ourselves into the future by coming back to ourselves. That's the Heideggerian, that's the basic dynamic of Dasein. And yeah. you're always anticipating, but, al but also always coming back. And, and while we do that, we are present, gegenwärtig. Um, and we are also beings that have a cultural legacy that are uh, determined, influenced to, to a large extent by what our ancestors were, right? The fact that we uh, speak English now 
that we speak English now has to do with the fact that there is globalization going on and that we have an, uh, an Englishification, right, of, yeah. of, um, of language and academia. That's why we speak English now. But uh, when we had this, this conversation in, in the 80s, when you were still young, we were doing this in, in Dutch, right? But this Dutch, our mother tongue, is also something that we inherit from our ancestors. And we inherit a lot of culture. You know, we, we study some kind of science by reading books about Galileo and Einstein and, and Lorenz and whomever. And I think it was, of course, very well aware of this historicity, what he called Geschichtlichkeit, uh, and of the fact that we were uh, determined uh, by, by the past. But what Stiegler shows is that this is only possible because we have these technical memories, these tertiary retentions, right? We can only go back to our past, a past that we that we have not ourselves lived by having access to uh, technical objects from this past, right? So can I summarize that if we go back, we, we started with biology. So we would say there's a biological evolution that can maybe explain what human beings are. Yeah. Then, then, uh, well, being in time. Uh, I don't want to call it metaphysical, but it's more like, well, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, ontological, metaphysical, ontological. yes, philosophical. Yeah. Uh, that's that is where we need to look if we want to understand uh, uh, the human being yeah. who's asking this question. Yeah. Um, and then Stiegler does go back to a more, let's say, material. Uh, yes. yeah. uh, part, but he doesn't go back to the biology. He goes back to the technology. The... Yeah, but to the technology insofar as it co-evolves in a yeah. very intimate way with biology. Let's so say, biology, yeah, in a differently put, it's yeah. uh, we we are. I think myself, but like one, you speak about what do we inherit, right? Yeah, I think one of the things that we inherit in this culture is that there is a distinction between. Uh, me and the headphones I'm wearing now. Yeah. Uh, between biology and technology. Yes. Uh, and even between the human and the technical, there are all these films about uh, humans and robots, or how yeah. humans are different from animals or from robots. Yeah. So there's this, this strict distinction between uh, me as a biological being and me as, let's say, a technical being that uses tools. Yeah. Uh, so Stiegler challenges that on yes. a very fundamental level. Yes, yes, yes. He, shall, he challenges also as biological beings. We are already technologized. The fact, of course, that we have these huge brains, yeah. that we have this multifunctional pause, uh, for instance, and that we stand upright, etc., etc. Uh, these things are all there because we have interacted with technology for millions of years, right? So our our biology is predisposed, so to speak, to function within a technical environment, to function within uh, a culture, right? So even our biology is, has, let's say, adapted itself to technology by, as Stiegler would say, by adopting uh, constantly uh, new kinds of technologies, right? Yeah. So, uh, but going back a little bit to Heidegger, 
what Stiglitz shows is that the human being can be this temporalizing being that, you know, that exists in the future and in the past simultaneously, uh, that projects itself, uh, that, that remembers uh, itself, that is historical, yeah. as Heidegger would say. That's only possible because we have this technical memory. So and there again, the, the title is another spoiler alert because Heidegger wrote Being and Time. Exactly. Stigler writes Technics and Time. Exactly. So Being and Time is about being uh, human existence as a, a structure of temporalization, Zeitlichkeit. And uh, Stigler's answer to this, well, uh, this, this temporalization can only be understood from technology, therefore Technics and Time. Yeah. That's indeed uh, the case. Um, but it's um, technologies are memories, implicitly, always. But the, the thing is, and that's important for Stiegler, uh, and that has never been taken into account by Heidegger, is the fact that at some point in our evolution, we started to create technologies that were explicitly intended to be memories, right? The, the stone tools only incidentally and spontaneous, spontaneously and not intentionally acted as memories, right? But when we started to uh, invent writing systems like in Sumeria and Egypt, these are technologies and, and Stiegler calls them mnemo technologies that are explicitly intended to record experience, right? Uh, in, in an exact way. And exactly that is the moment that history in the proper sense of the term uh, emerges, right? Because then we can go back to the past because we can see what these people have written, right? Yeah. Uh, on their papyruses, uh, or, 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 or on stones. And that opens up history, <laughs> right? We can still be there. For instance, that's the point. Uh, historians, that. sorry to interrupt you, but no. histor historians make a distinction, right? Between history and like the historical human being and the prehistorical human exactly. being. And the yeah. distinction is we started writing. We have, you know, in the, we find uh, pyramids, which is architecture. We find yeah. also, uh, let's say, dolmens um, older than that. But in the pyramids, we can there's writing on the wall, which is kind of an instruction for how to um, go to heaven or how to uh, do yeah. certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and history opens up with the invention of mnemo technologies, yeah. which are memory technologies, which are technologies that are able to record experience uh, and also mental experience, of course. And uh, that allows us to, 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 to go back to the past um, and learn from it and reinterpret these things. And that's also, uh, according to Stiegler, how philosophy uh, emerged and philosophy uh, emerges uh, through writing, right? Through, through, through the invention of uh, alphabetic writing uh, in Greece, right? And, and that's what, what made philosophy possible, right? Because we can now still talk 
with Plato uh, and with Aristotle because we share exactly the same recording technology. Well, not exactly. We, we, most of us do, do not know uh, Greek anymore, but we have translations. So we can return to Plato. Uh, we can see exactly what he said, right? <laughs> because it is recorded. We, we know his words. It's, it's, it's in what Stiegler calls an orthothetic recording, right? It's exactly recorded the words then that's possible with alphabetic writing technology, what he said. So we can always return and reinterpret uh, what he said. And the whole sequence of, of, uh, of uh, reinterpretations is what philosophy is actually all about. Yeah, which that's, that's actually the reason I called this Life from Plato's Cave, because we are, I think, in a way, what Plato wrote down. I don't know if he wrote it down himself or somewhere. I think he wrote it down himself. Yeah, he wrote it down himself. Yeah, it was actually quite a good... Uh, he was a good writer. He was a very good writer, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, he, he, in a way, he, he hated writing because his yeah. philosophy is anti, let's say, anti-writing. Uh, he's, he's, he's very much against writing because, yeah. well, that's, that's, that's another thing that we, we might go into. But uh, in fact, he, he wrote a lot. Uh, Socrates was the one who did not write, was a purely oral uh, philosopher, but very much aware already of the impact of writing technology on the soul. Right? For Stiegler, philosophy is actually a kind of therapeutical practice uh, for learning to be able to deal with this uh, infection of the mind with language technology in a proper way by yeah. developing logic and, and, and epistemology, et cetera, et cetera. Did, did Stiegler speak about Plato's allegory of the cave explicitly? Yeah, the late Stiegler does. Yeah, uh, quite a lot, actually. He, as you know, Stiegler um, intended to write uh, four more volumes uh, of his uh, major work, which is Technics in Time. Yeah. No, the first. So number four just came out. Yeah, but only as a as a manuscript still. Yeah. Uh, but I think it will be published at some point. Yeah. But there, there there were three other volumes to come, and the last volume would be a lot about uh, Plato and Aristotle, the kind of reinterpretation of Plato and Aristotle. Well, that's really too bad. <laughs> Sorry? That it, it's too bad that it didn't. Oh, well, uh, yeah. yeah, that's true. But a lot of it uh, can already be found in uh, in, in the, the Nanyin lectures that were published in 2019 or 20, I think, where mm. he talks a lot about Plato and Aristotle. He does not go explicitly into the cave allegory like Heidegger does, uh, but it's always in the back. Uh, yeah. For Stiegler, the, the earlier dialogues are more important, like the Meno and the Phaedrus and the Symposium. Yeah. So there's no strict distinction between biology and technology, according to Stiegler. But then there's, I think, and also uh, well, another... Well, of course, there is a distinction between biology and technology, but the thing is that he, and that's a, a term that he introduces um, 
I think around 2003 or four, humans are not only biological creatures or not only organic creatures, but we are also organological creatures. Yeah. Because we have a lot of technical organs, right? And these technical organs, all kinds of tools, um, make up a technical milieu, not so much a natural milieu, more a technotope than, than a biotope. And it is the case that our biology, our psychosomatic organs, are uh, very much adapted to this technical milieu. Yeah. So let's say that technology conditions and intervenes very profoundly in human biology, right? So that our biology is 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 always already attuned uh, to technologies, symbiotically existing with technology. So yeah. there is, of course, still a difference between biology and technology, although. You know, with the new biotechnologies, uh, this difference is is really uh, put into question, right? Yeah, yeah. That, but that's another chapter again, I think. Well, yeah, but there's um, so we have our uh, uh, genetics, our DNA, our yeah. genetic memory as a species. Then we have our epigenetics, which is also uh in uh bio biology a recognition that it's not just your genes determine who you are but also your experiences your life and everything your, yeah. your personal experience and yeah. then there's the epiphylogenetics which is yeah. the technical uh my heart drive if i want to if you give me your phone number uh, i don't want to remember it in my Exactly. personal memory i write it down on the piece yeah. of paper but yeah. the moment i lose the piece of paper i lose yeah. a part of my memory yeah yeah a part of your epiphylogenetic memory yeah 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 that's true and then to complicate it even more so there are, there is a biological evolution and a technical evolution which yeah. are both which are distinct but there are both evolutions it's not just uh human beings invent technologies and control i mean your your phd is called driven by yeah, gedreven door techniek driven, yeah, by driven by technology yeah that yeah that was the idea that i had that we are not it's not driven by genes anymore but but by technical artifacts yeah uh, which start to become yeah important and and even determinative for human evolution if we look at um and if we look at um, the banking crisis and climate change and social media and all those kind of things, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that we're not at the steering wheel exactly. <laughs> of uh, yes. technological evolution. Um, yeah. So, but according to Stiegel, we never were. We never were. Yeah, exactly. No. So, yeah. But that that we are discovering this that now because technology has uh, been accelerating dramatically uh, since the industrial revolution and when he, he starts off his second volume of techniques and time which has the title disorientation yeah. which is about our current disorientation which is very fundamental and which has to do first of all with uh, this technological acceleration but then of course also with the ecological crisis yeah um, but he said, well, when you, someone who lived in the Middle Ages uh, probably slept in the same bed or the same kind of bed as his parents, right? Because technological evolution uh, was not, went not very fast. We did not see in our environment 
the change of technology. Well, maybe a new clock work came in, or maybe a new. But you know, generally the 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 uh, the technical environment was pretty stable. Yeah. But with the industrial revolution, when uh, through all kinds of reasons, uh, for instance, you know, the, the emergence of capitalism, the change of our technical milieu, of our technical environment, rapidly accelerated. And so then people saw, right, you know, it's a phenomenological experience that the world was changing, right? And then at, at, that, at that point, you get also um, philosophy discovers history, like with, with Hegel. Right and with Nietzsche, we we discover ourselves as being historical beings, right? Because you know someone like Kant still yeah. thought of human beings as created, right, by a by a divine entity. But what more and more we experience, uh, and now we're already, I think, in the third or maybe the fourth industrial revolution, that there's this pace of technological change is constantly accelerating. And now we see more and more that, as you said, we're indeed not uh, in the driver's seat, right? There is yeah. a kind of internal autonomous dynamic to technology, and we are more following that dynamic, adopting it, so to speak, than that we are, you know, that we, that we are the movers, that we yeah. are instigators. But Stigler shows that retrospectively, we can now see that it has always been the case that technology was in the driver's seat, so to speak, and that it was uh, that we always responded, so to speak, or followed the process of technical innovation. But yeah. it's only since the 19th, well, late 18th, 19th century that it accelerated and that we become aware of the fact that we're uh, involved in this autonomous process. Well, it's not that we only follow it by there is uh, some uh, a space of negotiation mm -hmm. right but it, it, it's not that we like sovereignly determine the goals where we go no it's 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 we that's mostly what we do afterwards right we, we've 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 never invented the internet uh with in with having in mind what it now became right yeah I mean that's that's what uh, that's what Dominic Petman says, right? We're yeah. watching uh, while one person is watching maybe a beheading by ISIS or or the the climate change summit, and then somebody else is watching a cat video, and yeah. they're yeah they're all there together. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, the internet, uh, which is the latest the latest kind of what Steger would call a mnemo technology yeah right is, is completely uh, overthrowing our 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 world uh, and our social relations and nature and our politics everything is in a big crisis now uh, everybody who looks at the news can can see this and this crisis is uh, of course first of all i would say ecological or geological Right, uh, global warming and the loss of biodiversity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the destruction of ecosystems. But next to that, there's also this this uh, hyper accelerated technological environment, right, in which we have to constantly update uh, our tools and our gadgets. And this is uh, this produces a, a lot of a lot of disorientation. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, even if you buy a smartphone, the first thing you have to do is uh, update it. Exactly. And uh, there's, uh, I mean, family members who who never. I don't need a smartphone. Why I've ne- I've always survived without. Why do I need it? But then they start yeah. to uh, discover. Well, but actually, all the other people in my family are communicating yeah. through WhatsApp, and I'm missing it. So I have to adopt. It's not because I want a smartphone. Exactly. But yeah. if I don't buy one, I'm excluded from a certain kind of, let's say, human interaction between family members. Yeah. That's quite. I mean, it's quite normal but if you think about it that's quite extreme how much technology uh so to speak is in our very private even connection between parents and children and everything yeah 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 and and, and even much more so than in than in than in the 80s yeah i i've i'm older than you so i've experienced the let's say the internet revolution yeah. When I was young, like I, I've the eighties, there were computers, right? You know, some people had them. I think I had my first MSX computer in, I don't know, nineteen eighty four yeah. or, so, or something like that. It started with uh, computer games being able to play them on television, right? And at some point, the internet came in in the in the early nineties, and since that, actually, life completely changed. It has accelerated and it, it, it's it's it, it's as changed in, in so many different well what what did it change but but to, just just to, yeah. because that i mean we we because me too i can speak about that the you know one of the first pcs with internet and everything yeah if people are listening to this that are born let's say after 9-11 yeah uh we sound like very old people but yeah. that and that has been of all ages right i mean there's always been like oh in my day this and this so it's technological change is not something new it's not ch- it's not strange that uh you know my 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 parents or my grandparents have a different technological experience because it evolves, but there's yeah. something else that is different. And that's in the, the acceleration, right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's not just that it's changing, but the speed, the, the speed, which, which is changing is increasing. Yeah. And it doesn't stop. Uh, exactly. yeah. So what, what do you get when you have first every century, uh, maybe every millennium, a new, groundbreaking invention than every century every decade yeah you know where does that go uh you can see it happening in front of your eyes exactly yeah and 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 it and it changes our being again it changes our existence our being in the world so it's technology has an ontological effect right it's profoundly altering yeah our very way of being and that's the point that, that Stiegler is constantly making. Um, but his diagnosis very much was already in the first volume of Technics and Time, that because of this uh, accelerating pace, also because of the fact that it happens under the condition of, of global capitalism, uh, that it turns into what he called ill-being or mal-être, right? Uh, somehow this uh, technological juggernaut is very destructive of many things. That's Stiegler's diagnosis. It's destructive of uh, society. 
uh, of political institutions, uh, of culture, of ecology, obviously, but also, and that's his uh, main focus of, of our mind, what, what he calls the noetic, uh, what he calls noesis, which is the Greek word for mind, nous. Yeah. Uh, as historical beings, we are noetic beings and libidinal beings, which means beings of desire. And, and uh, that's also something that Dominic Batman writes a lot about, <laughs> about the libido. And it is exactly these two characteristics, the fact that we are knowing beings, beings of knowledge that need to know how to uh, navigate in the world, how to navigate on this planet and in society, etc., and desiring beings, right, who, who desire to uh, do all kinds of things, to, uh, in particular to a, to a good life, but also to, 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 to friendship and, and yeah. love and, and, and science and art, etc. These things are in a crisis. And that is the case because these things are also conditioned by technology, right? Yeah. And that's that's the just to refer back something we spoke about earlier is uh, uh, you said that you know the the stone tools you know why why could could this uh, let's say help uh, co evolve with you uh, biological is evolution is because the tools outlive us yeah but so that's what made the whole thing possible in the first place yes but that's now also the problem because my smartphone. Uh, I had a smart, uh, I think it's maybe two or three years old, uh, yeah. but I, I need to buy a new one soon because it's yeah. battery is not that everything. Yeah. So, but that's not a problem. I can get a new one. The problem yeah. is that my old smartphone is still there yeah. and it has a lot of nasty stuff inside of it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we're doing on a, on a huge uh, scale. <laughs> exactly so we know how to we know how to desire we know how to uh, have the life of the mind to to strategize and to get the things that we desire but we don't know what to do with it once we don't desire it anymore and yeah but Stiegler would say that we do not so much desire anymore as we are more and more driven we uh we are yeah it's not even a, an i mean do i really need a desire smartphone? Anymore. is it's, that it's, is that an honest is that what i exactly want in my deepest uh yeah. it's no, a consumerist I, desire yeah, yeah. It's, it's a program desire it's it's uh conditioned by marketing and, and by advertisement yeah the idea is that because of this technology and and, and because of the fact that uh, that it evolves in a, in, a, in a capitalist context in a consumerist context that because of that our long-term desires, our, let's say, our historical desires, which we see manifesting, for instance, in, 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 in historical projects such as the Enlightenment, right, which, which desired us to become rational, sovereign, autonomous, learned beings of building, et cetera, et cetera, as these desires are eroding, that's Stiegler's diagnosis, right? Yeah. And, and, and more and more uh, regressing into what he calls drives. Now we are more and more focused on the immediacy. Uh, we want the newest iPhone, for instance, or we want to see the newest blockbuster on, on, on Netflix. And it gives us a, a lot of cheap thrills, so to speak. But we're, we're less and less capable collectively 
of desiring other things for instance saving the planet right yeah for starters or or completely rechanging our economy which all these things that we actually need we need new big projects and we need a, a super enlightenment so to speak and 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 this is only possible through these new technologies right but it's also that these technologies um are, are standing in the way right yeah. they, they 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 condition it but they also decondition it yeah that's the stiglitz theory of the pharmacon that technology is both a poisoning power uh, that that um, that undermines all kinds of things that we do, but it's also a healing power, possibly at least, right? So um, we always need to invent new therapeutics, as he calls them. And these are simply ways of living, or political institutions, or regulations, or laws that allow us to operate with this technology in yeah, rational, civilized, social ways, right? We can easily transform the internet into a big instrument to take care again of, of the biosphere, for instance. We're not doing that now because yeah, big uh, capitalist corporations have designed this technology in such a way that, you know, it, it, it that it serves consumption, right? It's it's all about advertising and, and, and making money and uh, survey people and right. Cap it, it, yeah, capturing our attention, capturing our attention, our time, uh, our time, so to speak. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but this is not necessarily this. This does not have to be the case, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's not that these technologies are intrinsically, uh, let's say. Uh, turning us into into to to consumers or or zombies that's what they do now but they also in them have the the, the capacity to form the foundation of a completely new world and that's yeah. something yeah. that Stiegler very much uh, strived for in his in, in his work right of towards a complete transformation of the digital infrastructure that we're living in so so we've discussed quite a few things so far. So, but uh, you, you, if, if I remember correctly, you said you started studying biology because you have a love for nature, right? For yeah, different definitely. beings. Yeah. yeah. Then, then you you stu studied philosophy. You got into Heidegger uh, ontology. You discovered Stiegler and others. Sloterdijk. We could do a whole episode about Sloterdijk, yes. of course. <laughs> um, and coming maybe back full circle to uh, the, well, the biosphere, the geosphere yeah. uh, where we're living. So we have the, the biosphere, uh, the living beings, human beings, the geosphere. Well, we talked about that in another episode uh, with Marsha Björnerud, mm. uh, how, how this is, uh, what is happening on a planetary level. And then the, we have the technosphere of yeah. uh, uh, Bernard Stiegler and others. Can you talk a little bit about how you are using or combining all these insights in your work right now? What what are you, what is your noetic uh, noosphere uh, occupied with at the moment? Yeah, with with the noosphere and with the technosphere. Yeah, and uh, the, the technosphere is a is a, a concept that 
that's also taken over by Stiegler, although he never really develops it. It's it simply enters his discourse in, in 2018, uh, but he never really develops it. He uses it also in, in quite problematic ways, uh, in, in, in my view. But the idea of the technosphere was uh, put forward in the context of Earth system science, which is a, a new scientific discipline or paradigm that studies the Earth as a, a big unitary system. And the Earth is a, is a system of spheres. You talked about the biosphere, but there's also the hydrosphere and the cryosphere and the atmosphere and uh, the biosphere, which is very important. And it is the biosphere that is the, the totality of life, of living organisms that created our planet into what it is. And we have this beautiful blue-green globe, right? It's very unique in the cosmos, uh, but that's in a way made by life. And the Earth is a living planet. As some, some scientists uh, talk about the Earth as Gaia, right? Yeah. A kind of quasi-organismic homeostatic system. Now, when humans enter the scene, and we're already here for three and a half million years, we have created a new sphere to the planet, which uh, Peter Hoff, who's an American scientist, calls the technosphere. And in terms of uh, energy metabolism and, 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 and of presentness, presence on the planet, it, it is growing at the same level of these other spheres, right? And according to many, it will be the determinative sphere of the planet, that is technosphere, that is this, this total technological infrastructure of which the internet is of course a very important part, but it's also all kinds of transport systems and factories and uh, you know, what have you, it is increasingly impacting the biosphere, right? We, we are now living on a, on a, on a, on a technological planet where technology uh, and the human, uh, the human as a technological being, has become the most important force, the most important power on the planet, uh, which means that we have become responsible uh, for the future of the planet. Just very, very simply, uh, we talk about CO2 now as uh, yeah. CO emissions, as a, yeah. uh, that's not our farts, that's not our biological no, being. No, that's, that's, that's yeah, um, fossil fuels, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, and, and, and what, what we're doing, especially since the Industrial Revolution with this technosphere is rapidly destroying uh, the earth as a life support system, right? By global warming, of course, but also by uh, destroying biodiversity by poisoning ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera, in all kinds of ways, but also by poisoning ourselves, right? That's what, what Stiegler would say. So- Yeah, it, what, what uh, uh, for instance, Dominic Petman, uh, his title of the book is Infinite Distraction, is because yeah. we're also burying our head in yeah. social media and in other ways um, yeah. that we don't even notice what is going on with the biosphere. Yeah. Yeah, we entertain ourselves on screens with with movies and and and, uh, and video games, etc. But all around us, uh, the planet is uh, is, yeah. is is disappearing. That's you know this very dark picture. But 
it is in a certain way quite so that's that's a di diagnosis it is, it is, so dr di lemons what is the what's the therapy <laughs> <laughs> what what do what needs to happen what uh, what do we need to think about yeah, yeah we, we need to focus need, these these screens need to be uh repurposed uh, for for other things right for for again taking care collectively uh, of our environments of our social environments locally but also globally um yeah, we can completely transform them. This is not going to be easy, right? Uh, but that's the way forward. Um, and I, I was talking about Stiegler's idea of the technosphere. What he claims is that it is uh, very much, a, a, let's say, a, a, a destructive uh, process or entity because it produces what he calls entropy right and entropy is of course a, a concept coming from thermodynamics and that is the tendency of things to decay or to to spread out right and if you look at the and the planet at the earth as a living planet it is a unique entity because it has produced a lot of anti-entropy or negentropy life is a very complex uh, thing organisms are very complex so something happens uh, on this planet something that we do not really completely understand but that we try to understand physically and thermodynamically um, there's a huge production of entropy right that's what animals and plants are they are uh, you know thermodynamically a way of producing negentropy which itself serves the production of increased entropy yeah i know that this sounds a, uh, a little bit uh, complex maybe but well, entropy is a very complex concept is there, it's, it's, uh, the most simple explanation which is always used is that if if i drop a cup it will you know kind of be chaotic the the shards will be there yeah and you don't really see shards forming into a cup Exactly. So yeah. the tendency on a universal level is that things become more spread out, exactly more uh, equal. But if you look around you, you see, uh, you know, if you walk on the sand, you see maybe a, a natural uh, heaps of sand. Like you think, well, this is just how sand forms. But if you see a sand castle, you yeah. know, well, a, a child has been playing there because yeah. that is that is the negentropy is to make this sand castle. You need to. Yeah put yeah let's say energy thought everything in there to put things in order yeah but also plants yeah. and everything that that's those are examples of like orderliness of systems yeah, of, of yeah. very what, complex what we call negentropy the, the, this term was introduced by erwin schrodinger yeah who was a, an austrian physicist in in in, a, in a 1942 book what is life where we showed that life is unique in the universe and that it is not entropic like, for instance, stars and all other uh, inorganic systems, but are negentropic. Their, their entropy is constantly uh, increasing, and also uh, on an evolutionary scale. Yeah. And we now know that the more complex a system is, the more efficiently it can produce entropy. And that's what we need, because otherwise it uh, will rapidly become too hot. Right? We need... Uh, tropical rainforests we need animals we need all these biosystems right to 
to yeah to basically to put it very simply to cool the planet. To so to cool extent, the planet, we need complexity. Yeah, that's put, putting it very simply. Yeah, and 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 we need so far life was doing this spontaneously. We know from Gaia theory that the conditions for life on this planet have been constant for millions of years, frankly. And of course, there are differences. We have very hot periods like the Eocene and the Miocene, right? When we had no poles, no ice on the poles. And there were ice ages, so-called snowball earth ages when the whole planet was, was frozen, right? But it always remains within uh, certain parameters, right? Yeah. Such that life can continue. There's a, now, there are feedback loops that are there are feedback uh, loops. at work. Yeah. How do you say climate de denialists? They say, well, CO2 is uh, emissions is natural. That has always happened. Yeah. Yes. There's always been a balance between CO2 emissions and CO2. Fossil yeah. fuels are a way of storing CO2 in the earth. Yeah. But now we're taking them out and we're burning them. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we can do that, of course, because, our, uh, because of our intelligence and because of our knowledge and our technology. Yeah. And because, of, because we, and that's another term that's also used in the context of earth system science, because we have developed this noosphere, the sphere of knowledge. The noosphere is actually you know, the combined impact uh, on the planet, on the atmosphere, the biosphere of human scientific and technological intervention, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, it now produces a situation where entropy is increasing. And that's a problem, right? Because if we continue with this, we will end up, you know, destroying the planet but according to Stiegler we can reverse this process right technology is not simply uh, an anthropic force it's also an agentropic force right how do humans differ from animals well in our what we have done we have inserted so to speak uh, technological infrastructures in our uh, biosystems and, and the biosystem is, you know, thermodynamically spoken, simply a way of deferring entropy, right? A very yeah. complex way of a very complex process. Postponing our death. <laughs> Postponing our death, yeah. yeah. Because death is, 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 is total entropy, right? Yeah, but we have medicine, we have exactly. uh, all these yes. kind of things. We humans are, live longer now than they did before. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, so technology can, can support or add to our negantropic tendency, right? Uh, and it does, in a certain extent, our artificial intelligence could easily be seen as, as, as very much supporting uh, negantropy, but it doesn't do that now. That technology at the moment is more and more increasing entropy, uh, which is why Stiegler also talks about the Anthropocene as the Anthropocene, as the age of increasing entropy. Yeah. But we can change it because technology is a pharmacon, right? It, 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 it's that which can, which can produce entropy, but it can at the same time also uh, produce negentropy. So we need to uh, yeah, invent ways in which to much more uh, intelligently and carefully operate with uh, these technologies. And is that what you 
referred to earlier as something like the new enlightenment or the yeah that yeah that could yeah that could uh, be the new enlightenment then uh, what Stigler calls the negantropocene so we negantropocene if yeah. we get there if we survive the anthropocene the then next we age will the be negantropocene. yeah yeah which will be an age where there uh, is the technological evolution and the biological evolution and the no noatic evolution noatic the evolution. evolution of the mind are producing uh negantropy or imbalance yeah. or part of the yeah per, old, like the geological even uh, structure of our yeah. uh, planet yeah new health and, and new new wealth and and, and uh, new social structures and a new desire yeah. so this was important a new a new desire for the future because at the moment our future horizon has also collapsed right uh and that's what the younger generations are feeling, right? There is no future for us, as the punks were already saying in the in, in, in the 1970s. Yeah, why would I go to college? I just saw this sign. Why would I go to school if exactly? Yeah, there's no world yeah. anymore. When yeah, yeah, yeah. How to how to how to recreate yeah. a, a horizon of hope, yeah. of, of desire? That that's that's uh, one of of Stiegler's, uh, hmm. Uh, projects also so um, it's 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 very good to know that even if we can't go into it in depth at the moment that at least uh, you feel that there is a clear vision of what needs to happen you you're not a fatalist in the sense of uh well this is the end of the earth or this is uh just i'm not a fatalist but i'm not but i'm also not very optimistic <laughs> personally yeah. because it's going to be a, a very tall order yeah but um you know I, nobody can see into the future and uh, when systems get very complex uh, really weird things can happen right yeah. so uh, so uh, it's not it's, it's not necessarily already too late i don't think so but uh we need to dramatically change but i, yeah. I think we're, we're we're in we're in this process now already and uh yeah we, we don't know what is happening of course well there our prime minister said we need to gra gradually change uh to uh yeah but I, I, yeah but i think gr gr this graduality yeah is, we need to dramatically change and so that that's change. the that's the point so yeah. that's the, the message so the basic message that that Rutte, our prime minister said is uh, well, <laughs> he said two things. He said uh, at the climate conference, he said action, action, action. Mm. And then there was a possibility for action, which is stop investing in uh, yeah. fossil fuels. Yeah. But then there was uh, an official statement, which I summarized as uh, quoting uh, Greta Thunberg, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why we are not doing that. Yeah. And then there was another message, which the message was good, but only this word gradually. Yeah. We need to yeah, gradually but, do this. You know, I think Rutte, I, mean, I think Rutte is a little bit older or younger than me. I don't know exactly, but we're not yet a generation that really experienced the urgency of of what is going on. Yeah. You know, when we, you know, from the eighties, well, go, there was the bomb, right? The possibility of the the atom bomb, atomic war, which was really depressing yeah. in our days, and. Um, but you know there was uh, acid rain 
and the climate was a problem, but it, you know, it was pr pretty far away and it was pretty far in the future. At least we thought that. But now uh, this new generation, and I, I also have a daughter who becomes 17 uh, this month, and they are much more aware of what is going on. Uh, yeah. Their future is uh, at stake, right? Much more than ours. And Greta Thunberg is part of that generation. So I think generation-wise, you can expect uh, an acceleration yeah. in environmental and ecological awareness and, and, and maybe, hopefully, also possibly in, in political action. But the current political elites are, you know, not yet very uh, supportive, yeah. I would think. Uh, but their, you know, their end is nigh, right? Yeah. Uh, and you, 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 you could see that, for instance, indeed, with, with uh, financiers that stop uh, investing in, in fossil fuel uh, companies. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And we, we see um, in, in uh, the, the, of course, the court cases of milieu defense yeah. uh, to, to yeah. Shell and the government. And, yeah. Um, so really, it, 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 I, th I think it, I think it will accelerate. Of course, yeah. a lot of bad things will also happen. We, we, we will inevitably encounter a lot of disasters, I think. Yeah. But with that, I think there will be more and more willingness among larger parts of the population to, yeah, to deal with it. And it will become inevitable, I feel, you know, when the conditions of our uh, industrial civilization, like fossil fuel, etc., will also slowly, you know, degrade or disappear, right? So uh, yeah. it, 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 it will be become a kind of necessity. No. But I, I cannot look into the future, of course. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. Well, I was just, yeah, maybe we should close as well. But I was just thinking about episode three with Mika Ball. She, uh, she had this uh, exhibition which uh, uh, dealt with explicitly with urgency. Uh -huh. And the first, uh, you know, when you come in, the first short film is about the figure of Cassandra. Yeah, 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 and then she yeah. makes a comparison with Greta Thunberg and Cassandra with the, yeah. uh, you know, this whole bullshit about we need more effects, we need more technological innovation, we need more knowledge. Technovics. Um, yeah, which is basically the solution. The, that's the way. Uh, if you talk about the people who are in power now, that's that's the way. If you have a problem, you you form a commission, you take your time, you make sure that there is. Draagvlak, I don't know what it is called in English, like... Uh, yeah, enough public support. Public support, yeah. then you invest in technological innovation, you study and everything like that. Yeah. And I think, well, uh, of course, we need to continue with that, but that's... We have enough uh, of that, and now, well, yeah, actually, the, the, the uh, uh, Rutte's uh, quote is perfect: "Action, action, action." Yeah, yeah, and 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 the technologies are already there. It's not, uh, no. you know, and I'm I'm not in favor of techno solutionism, as as they call it, but 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 neither is Stiegler. I think it's it's more like in inventing new social structures and, and no. thinking about. The social adoption of technologies than necessarily, you know, think think of something new. Of course, we we can always think of more 
sustainable technologies, et cetera, et cetera. But what is more important is the change of our societal structures, which yeah. are enabled already, uh, to, to put it in more Marxist terms, with, with the current uh, means of production. Yeah. Um, there is a, everything is, is in order, so to speak, to, to, to create a, an economy based on commons, for instance. Yeah. But um, yeah, that will take some time, I, uh, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, perhaps yeah, we will speak another much. time because there's so much more to to other things to speak about. But just maybe to close, is there if someone is interested in what we've discussed, but not necessarily doesn't have a philosophical training or something like that, can you suggest a place to start or a book or something else? Well, of course, we mentioned the Istar before, which is a movie also about Heidegger and Stiegler, but are there other books that are a good way to start? You mean on Stiegler specifically? or, or Well, about or... just anything uh, that we discussed that you feel would contribute to uh, facing the problems that we are dealing with. Oh, oh my God. A big question. That's <laughs> a big question. Yeah, there are so many. Um, well, in, 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 in terms for Stiegler, I think you, you could best start with uh, an interview book that he did in uh, 2011, um, which is called Philosophizing by Accident, uh, which is a translation in English of some um, interviews that he did with, uh, with another French philosopher, which is still, I think, a good introduction to his work. Yeah. Um, Stiegler is a difficult author, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy to get into his work because yeah. he uses a lot of neologisms and uh, his writing is not necessarily accessible. So, well, which is why I really appreciate your writing because I'll I'll put all the articles in the sure yeah uh, description. But uh, because you how you write in English also about Heidegger and Stiegler, uh, very I mean people write especially Heidegger people write a lot about Heidegger, but it's so difficult especially in English yeah. to summarize it in a way that I mean at least I feel <laughs> does justice to it. So I can really recommend those articles that uh, I'm reading them right now and uh, they're okay, helping yeah, me yeah, a yeah. lot uh, to kind yeah, of you know, you know, any book on, on, on a good book on the Anthropocene for instance which you know I'm very much in, involved with and interested in at the moment and then yeah. especially the technological aspects um, yeah like I, I think Clive Hamilton's book for <laughs> instance um, uh, Defiant Earth I think it is. It's subtitled the uh, the fate of the human in the age of the Anthropocene or something like that, which really sketches very nicely, uh, you know, the picture of the planet and where, where we're up to, and what kinds of challenges that we're confronted with in the future. So, uh, okay, yeah. thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and maybe we can write again, uh, Mario. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. I provided some links to the works we just mentioned and Peter's articles in the description. Go to livefromplatoscave.com for ways to support this podcast. I hope to see you again next month.